Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and double exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 76, Formalizing Your Game Business. Recorded at Metatopia 2015. Presented by Steve Segedy, Fred Hicks, Brennan Taylor, and Darren Watts. All right, so what is it? This is formalizing your business. Yes. Right. You're formalizing your game business. We're talking about turning from a, a small gaming company into a slightly less small. Thing. Right. Right, yeah, which is okay. kind of... Hopefully you can get to the land of the medium-sized company. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so uh, let's introduce the panel. We'll start on the left. Uh, you want to go first? Darren? I'm Darren Watts. I uh, am formerly the owner of Hero Games and Indie Price Revolution. Uh, one of the owners. That's going to come up a couple of times. Yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, and I am also the business director for Envoy. Here for the people putting on the show. So a couple of exposure. So. Uh, I'm Fred Hicks. I run Evil Hot Productions, which is working on becoming slightly less small. Yeah. Uh, I'm Brennan Taylor. I'm one of the founders of Indie Press Revolution, and I also run a game company called Galileo Games, which is. Uh, just about to turn from a small company to a medium company. Last so, time I talked to you, I wasn't sure that you were even going there with that. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. so. I'm Steve Segetti uh, with Bully Pulpit Games. Um, fiasco. I've seen on Tabletop. Night Witches, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we are definitely bigger than small, but not not as big as Evil Hat. So, uh, right. we're, you know, there's a continuum, and the reality is that none of us are big. Sure. Yeah. What's interesting is that you have something that in many ways is huge yeah. relative to a lot of the stuff we do at yeah. Evil Hat. But yeah. you're, you know, you've got your stable that's all little Our, our operation there. is small and most of our games are small and then we have Fiasco which have kind Fiasco. of exploded <laughs> things. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 That was us with the present Files role playing. Yeah. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of times. Makes sense. I think it's safe to say that this is going to be a lot of Q&A. Uh, we don't have a formal agenda. We don't have a formal agenda, but we can certainly talk about some of those yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, when I've been explaining this panel to, to people prior to coming here, uh, the joke I've uh, uh, made is uh, uh, well, what you need to do is find someone like Chris Hanrahan, hire him, and then do everything he tells you to do, because that's been a big part of Evil Hat growing. Chris Hanrahan is a game store retailer, but he also has a um, something of a background in Marketing, business development, things like that, um, and it was. Uh, he, I started working with him just prior to. Well, I, I'd kind of been like conversational with him for years prior, but just prior to the Fake Horror Kickstarter, um, he and I had started like putting our heads together more formally, um, and I was like siphoning his retailer mojo so that I could like understand that side of the business. Uh, as much as possible and getting some advice from him on what to do. And then as the fake court Kickstarter started to blow up in uh, early 2013, uh, by blow up, um, uh, I realized suddenly we had a much larger job on our plate than um, <coughs> uh, I think, uh, than we really, I, at that point, could, could seriously take on. Um, so that's the point at which uh, listening to him started making a lot of sense because that's the point at which he said, I know somebody who could do project management 
and if we bring him on, he can help us make sure that we deliver lots of products at the same time frame. Um, uh, because the thing that I particularly was falling down on, and uh, I think this awareness of what you are personally falling down on as a publisher is, is a big part of this, um, was like establishing deadlines and holding people to schedules. Um, and that's exactly what a project management thing is. So when you're identifying like what your problems are, you're also identifying what jobs you need to hire for. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as much self-awareness as you can point at that, I think, uh, uh, really gets you to the point where you realize the kind of people you need to bring on board. Sure. All right, so uh, let's uh, kind of get a temperature of the room here. I want to know who's, I assume most of you are uh, attempting to grow a business. That's why you would be here. Who here has a business that has already been doing uh, game publishing? Are you selling a game? One, two, okay. And then everybody else, are you looking to get into the game business? Is that what's going on? Folks who are doing that? Yeah, okay. Okay. Right. You're looking aspirationally towards the future. Mm-hmm. Got, it. Got it. Okay. That's useful. Well, that's actually important to know. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. So we'll, we'll we'll start on the very bottom of the scale. Right. right. <laughs> and I think I, I think for a lot of us up here, the experiences that we had getting to the medium-sized level within the industry, to a certain extent, was forced on us. Right. Like we had a product that did better than we thought it was going to. We sure. had a thing where we suddenly found that we had to professional up. Yeah, on I a got, level that like, I, I got a phone call from Jim Butcher who said, "Would you like to license this? Because we heard that this free thing that you and Rob were just doing in your spare time got some awards, and, right. and I'd rather have my friends work on this than somebody else." And I'm like, uh, "I'm going to have to make a company first, figure out how to be a publisher, put a few things out there to make mistakes with that aren't with your baby. So it'll take us a while, but uh, yeah. right. that's how Evil yeah. Hat even and we had, became a commercial thing. When, first when Hero Games, when Fifth Edition came out, its success was a tremendous surprise to us. Right, and you know we had two and a half people working at the company at that point, and suddenly found that that was not close to what we were going to require. Right, you know, for what was happening to to our you know surprise hit game kind of thing. Right. I mean, we certainly had always hoped for it. We, it's not like we went in. <clears throat> Said we want to make a game that doesn't sell any copies or whatever, but mm-hmm. we were, you know, we, we were we were gratified and then suddenly overwhelmed by the. You know, <coughs> and the these days, crowdfunding is going to accelerate that. It's going to be absolutely So I'm actually at a different kind of interesting spot, which right. is where I am running a company that basically has more work than I can do, yeah. but isn't quite making enough money for me to hire someone to do it. That is, that is interesting. <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> right. yeah. And uh, one of the ways I'm dealing with that is through you know partnerships and getting in collaborating with people rather than hiring them, just trying to find folks who are... You're doing that with like a co-ownership stake, royalty structures, things like that? Not even that formal yet. We're, we're working our way into that. Got it. Right. With me and Tim over there. Right. <laughs> I'm familiar with that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so basically what we're doing at this point is just, you know, we've been talking together and just having someone to bounce ideas off, um, collaborate for certain things like, you know, convention presence and yeah, stuff. So, yeah. Uh, before we go over to Steve, but I think he's going to back up this point, so I'm kind of setting it up for you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are going it completely alone, Seriously consider a collaborator, even if it's just a guy who's a sounding board. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Evil Hat managed has managed to do what it's managed to do 
because Rob Donahue was there along with me from, from the get-go. And he filled a lot of gaps uh, uh, for me. Um, he let me kind of passionately pursue the business side while he tended a little bit more sort of the creative soul of the company um, uh, at times. Um, uh, you know, and while he was a co-founder with it, you know, I ended up doing a lot of the day-in, day-out work of Evil Hat, but the fact that I always had somebody there to kind of be looking at the things that I wasn't having any time or attention span or whatever to even notice were there um, uh, was huge in terms of giving us a really solid footing for, for future growth. Yeah, so my partner is Jason Morningstar, and he's designed all the games we've published, except for the Warren, the recent one. Um, and if he and I had not uh, connected and, and formed the company, uh, he would have continued to design games, and maybe he would have sold some of them, but that's not, that wouldn't be his primary focus. He would have been just creating, because he wanted to create. Um, forming the business, I, I took on most of the, the work of building that. Um, so he makes the games, and I'm the publisher, the editor, a lot of times the, the sounding board. Yeah. And I think that collaboration is what has made this work. <clears throat> so having people, even if you're not directly working with them, which is probably the best, but having other people around you, peers that you can rely on, people that can give you honest feedback about what you're doing, and it's really, really helpful. Yeah. So Steve, I just want to tell you that I was in a conversation with another designer last year mm. and uh, we were sort of talking about what the issues we were facing and both of us decided what we needed was a Steve Segetti. Oh, that's, that's, that's very nice. That's very nice. Yeah. Unfortunately, we hear you already have a job. So right, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. And the funny thing is that I'm at the point that we've been talking about where, where there's more stuff that we can do than I can do. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I can't be the, the business person, the editor, the the the, the variety of hats that I wear, not all of them evil, um, but so I need other people too. And so I was doing the same thing. I was saying I need to poach Hanrahan or <laughs> Sean Nittner and like get these people who are obviously really, really good and add people to our team. So that's sort of a, a thing that we're looking for. And I think that that's the tipping point that we're talking about, but not where you guys are yet, apparently. So, but yeah. it, it, you could get there a lot faster than you might expect if you have something that just takes off, you can end yeah. up in that position. And that's actually um, one of the things that you'll see in a lot of uh, business you know, books about startups and about founding your own business, is that success can kill you just like uh, failure can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I absolutely do not want to turn this into a Kickstarter panel, but again, yeah. Kickstarter and, and things like it are very much an accelerator where that sort of thing can happen to you before you're even prepared. Yeah. Right. So. I'm, I'm glad we got the space of time we did for that. Yeah, that's kind of directly relevant to my question. Is just the situation you're in where you have a Kickstarter that's so successful you have to expand on your on on, on your manpower. Yep. How do you then how do you then account for that? Because you probably created your Kickstarter under a certain expectation about right. how many heads. Well, yes. I mean, we did we did keep. Uh, putting our backs into it every time like there was a stretch goal hit we were like eh, let's try to get something in there so a lot of what was happening while that I think it was a two, that was a two month span um, while the stretch goals were getting hit behind the scenes I was scrambling around trying to at the very least find talent who was willing to take on these things so I could actually put a stretch goal out there that had somebody who was going to implement it when it was inevitably hit um, uh, uh, so we could just even get that on the roster so that's kind of phase one is simply making sure you've got the talent to execute if you don't have the talent to execute, don't offer the guy an extra stretch goal. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
because otherwise you'll find out that you made a promise that you have no no ability to back up. Um, the second part of that is then making sure that you bring in, and this can happen on a somewhat more relaxed time frame, but not that much more relaxed, a, um, a enough support net network to make sure that that talent can execute and without you having to directly be involved with every single thing. Because this is really a exercise in like full contact delegation. Right? Yes. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like suddenly you need to take a bunch of jobs that you used to be doing yourself on a much smaller scale and do them at a larger scale with people who aren't you. Right. And for and who, a control freak, yeah, that's that's uh, hard to do, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, but uh, and in fact, that's one of the things that Chris Anderson has been doing for me is he like looks at looks at the things as what are the things that are essential that for Fred, Fred to be the one himself to do, do by himself. Yeah, let's also yeah. put up a list of things that you could delegate, and we'll just work on one of them at a time. You know, right. so I was still doing art direction for a lot of the time, but. Uh, but then eventually as I started to realize I was having less and less time for it, it was becoming more and more of a problem task for me rather than a, a fun task. I'm like, okay, I need to start delegating art direction, which was hard because art direction was such a, it's such a large part of the company identity in terms of the packaging of the products and how, the, how they're expressed out. It was yeah. really hard for me to let up on that. Um, so you know, I tried out a bunch of different art directors on small projects simultaneously um, uh, and then found like the one or two were like, okay, this is going to be a repeat business person. Um, uh, and, and started uh, working with her some more. Um, yeah. uh, and that, 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 that has worked out well. And that's just like one microcosm. That was even later in the process. Uh, like right up front, I already knew, oh, we now have so many projects going on that I'm going to drop all of these balls. I just know it. Right. I need somebody who's professional, who's a professional, not ball dropper. Well, you, you need to have that uh, self-awareness too, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, right. when I did the Bulldogs Kickstarter just recently, I knew going into it that I was going to need a project manager on it just because I was becoming overwhelmed by other things and I need somebody to keep these things on track. I mean, Kickstarter is a promise and you got to make sure you fulfill it. So. Now, now, the, the upside that applies, of, sorry, but that, that applies, you know, when, when you're where you guys are in the stage for that you need to be ready <coughs> knowing those things. At the, you know, at the, this point now, you're doing all of those things, mm -hmm. but you have to have a list of all of those things you're doing and know, you know, like where they can go and start making the relationships and start figuring out, you know, the places that you can look at the time that you need somebody to take that over. Yeah, one of the know? things, one of the things that I think comes out of that is, uh, like, when you're writing out all these jobs that you're doing, also rate their fun factor. Right. Right. Yeah. That's important. Delegate yeah. the shit, which is not fun. Man. Don't don't I mean, leave yourself all the unfun stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm very lucky that uh, uh, I found as I started to run Evil Hat that I actually had fun in the running of Evil Hat. Um, you know, there are some people who get into running a company and they, you know, suddenly realize, oh, I, I actually wanted to be designing games, and all this business stuff is taking away from the from from my true want. Right. right. I enjoyed. Uh, designing games, but I also enjoyed running a company, and with enough equivalence that I'm like, okay, I can start having lots of other people designing the, designing the games, as long as I'm like sort of doing the oversight and the packaging and all that. And so unfortunately, uh, well, one more thing: that's the these this list of jobs, these things that you're doing, are not just the project management stuff, but no, it not. is all as you are kind of like ramping up and becoming more professional as a company. You're going to have to deal with the legal stuff. You're going to have to deal with your accounting stuff. You're going to have to deal with your, you know, managing your shipping and you know your warehousing and all the other things, you know, that that will be involved in that process as well. Yeah. That you're going to learn, you know, to manage on a certain level when you're doing it by yourself. But you, ideally, you're going to have some help from 
professionals who are doing that yes, as well. For growth, cultivate you know? a desire not to do it all yourself. Right, so even exactly. if you're doing it all yourself. I start. strongly advise doing what I do and have a sister who's an accountant. That's yes. yes. <laughs> when, when Hero came together, everybody, everybody who came to the company not only brought their creative abilities, like when they were doing, but everybody literally in the group had some other outside thing right, they were bringing. Yeah, Jason yeah. owned a warehouse. Yeah. Steve is a lawyer. Right, yeah, like, yeah. Exactly. I know how books get made and yeah. I can deal with printers. Okay, yeah. we all, you know, between us, we can put up a barn and have a show, you know. Yeah. Let's, let's start with this question. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, this is a great segue to my question, but how did you guys find the right people? When you got to the point where you were like under the crush and you're like, oh my God, I need somebody, where did you go? The good yeah. step number one, here, or a place, yeah. to, a place like this, even wherever yeah. you are. Network. Because this networking Network. is Network. a big chunk of what this show is about. Okay. Yeah. But uh, people who do these things are here. The par- and part of one, one of the one of the secret superpowers of being under a crush like that is that you're under a crush because something you did was popular, right? right? Yeah. You also potentially have a base of fans to draw on in, yeah. that, in that moment too. Right. Um, and the way we got our project manager in Fake Core was because uh, he was local to Chris Handerhand, who I was already working with, as I said. And I can tell you the story about how I met him in a bit. Um, uh, but uh, uh, he knew somebody local who had project management skills, who was also a huge fan of the stuff that we were doing. He's like, why don't we start with him? We'll pay him you know, like a small amount for a small amount of time here and there, but he'll keep he'll keep stuff on track, and then we can like essentially level him up in terms of his right. payout. If it, if it works out, we can just keep giving him more stuff. Right. And the same sort of story with Lenny, right? I mean, he was writing for well, yeah. Uh, Lenny Lenny ended up writing for uh, for Evil Hat uh, because uh, he kept throwing enthusiastic and uh, thoughtful questions and problems at me in the fake discussion groups back in the before time before yeah. we went commercial at all. Um, Chris Hanrahan, uh, uh, like I said, he's a he's a game store retailer, um, first and foremost, really. Um, and uh, he's one of the first retailers who signed up with IPR. Yeah, actually. yeah. yeah. It, 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 basically, one, one of the alpha stores there. out there, Endgame in Oakland, California. Um, uh, and uh, he, at one point, when uh, we were when Spirit and Century got out there and for the scale of operation that we were, blew up and kind of outpaced us. We found ourselves. Yeah, we found. You know about this because we were running IPR at the time. Um, I know. We sat at my dining table, packing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's another war story. But, yeah. uh, 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 this particular story, essential war story, was the time, the one of the very few times that I let a popular product become out of stock at IPR at any point. Um, and uh, Chris was doing a podcast with his friend. Uh, Brian Iskoff that I listened to because it was one of the few podcasts that focused on the game, the business of the game industry. Um, and uh, uh, in it, they were talking about how, you know, Spirit of Century is very popular, but, but, but I hadn't showed up uh, because IPR had run out. And I immediately popped over onto the comments page and said, hey, I'm Fred, I'm from, from Evil Hat. Sorry about this. This happened because the demand, like, outpaces a bit. I've got a print run underway right now. It's delivery time frame with IPR is expected in such and such a day. I basically threw information at him because I'm pathologically transparent. And uh, 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 he responded very positively like, oh, a publisher who's paying attention came right. by, gave me personal attention, and uh, uh, gave me all the information I needed in order to make my customers happy or at least tell them how long they'd have to wait. Um, and then following that, was our first origins and he first origins that I went to and he was there and we got to talking and you know we just became friends I'd ask him questions about uh, retail focused stuff over time and then eventually you know I, I visited him enough uh, out in uh, California and would talk about the things I wanted to do with people had enough it, uh, at one point I said to him you know I'd, I'd love to have you come on and actually do like formal marketing consulting for me but I, I don't think we can afford you uh, and he's like 
you'd be surprised. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, and then started working for me for cheap, which was enough for him to like justify, you know, putting a few hours aside a week to give me a lot of good ideas of how to grow the company and how to, how to prove it. And also, by way of that, I was also leasing access to his local pool of game store focused Bay Area talent for all all sorts of things. And we've we've started to I've started to refer to that as Evil Hat West. Um, uh, uh, and uh, that's where uh, things like the uh, entire War of Ashes uh, uh, role-playing game from the person giving us the license to the setting and the art uh, all the way through the people who developed it that are all essentially orbiting around that, that game sort of thing. So, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's really about, like, networking enough until you've got, like, those few contacts, um, whether they're fans or whether they're retailers or whatever, right. who, can, who can step in and at least give you advice that connects you to somebody. I'm well, and, and, and even then, uh, one of the other things is, sorry, Dan, uh, uh, that, that if you come to events like this and meet other publishers, they're going to know people who can do stuff like right. this. Yeah, they have bandwidth for it. Yeah. Right? Obviously, he's not going to give you his hand in hand. No. But, <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, we're, we're in contact with, we, we, if we've been in business for a while, we're in contact with people and we might have references. Yeah, yeah. Right. My <coughs> first business partner was a guy I played games with at Dundercon, yeah. you know, who was also a writer whose work I had admired, and we came time for, you know, I was looking for a writer for my first book, uh, you know, with Hero for this. I knew that he had expressed an interest in it in the past, and I went to him at Gen Con, snuck him out of the, you know, Last Unicorn booth uh, to take to lunch in, in order to try to talk, to talk him into hiring, you know, yeah. to let me hire him to, to write it. And by the time I had finished giving my speech about what we were doing and why I wanted him on board, his response was, not only yes, but I want to buy in. Uh-huh. And that was, you know, wow, okay, we're, we're a company now. Look at that. Yeah. You know? That leads perfectly to my next question, which is buy-in. Like, right. Essentially, how do you determine the split of, of um, ownership of the company, especially given now that so much of the way that a lot of uh, publishers are working is print on demand. Like everyone's essentially just putting in effort and time. And so until you, unless you've already set like what every person's worth, how do you determine who owns how much? Well, there, there are a variety of industry standards for fair wages for a variety of jobs. Um, there are also a number of jobs that have no idea how to price themselves. And even if you ask the people who like, they, I don't know how to budget for the job I want you to do for me, what should be the Right, um, so you you'll run into that certainly, and it's just going to have to be a conversation where you can say, okay, I think paying double minimum wage for your time would be a good place to start. So let's try that and see how see what five hours a week for me looks like. Well, and buying that's for what I can ownership, afford, I think, you know? is what you were actually talking well, about. Right, right, yeah. right. At founding time is really when you want want to do that stuff. Bringing people in after as new contributors gets really squidgy right exactly when you, yeah I mean at um, that point we had already been a corporation so we sold him shares yeah you know, and then yeah. worked out the you know the price of that right. and, that and, just, and yeah. uh, I don't know if you listen to a podcast but there's one called startup that uh, mm-hmm. there's a whole episode about that and they couldn't figure it out either yeah. so yeah. it's not like there's any good guidelines yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not the only person that's the No, yeah. right. <laughs> Rob and I both pooled basically some spare cash uh, 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 to make, I think it was about a $10,000 seed for starting. Because we knew that we had, uh, like, the Dresden Files license. We, we didn't want to go, like, completely bare bones. So a, and we, we had the money, so uh, we, we uh, find resources, started with uh, $10,000. And to date, 
he's the only other owner of, of the company. Everyone else I've, I've brought on, I've uh, you know essentially done as freelance contract work. Um, you know, sometimes it's a monthly payout, uh, as is the case with people like who are part of the head, um, uh, the head <coughs> of the hat. Um, uh, uh, they, uh, our project manager, our um, head of marketing, business development. They're employees, um, basically. Right, yeah. They're yeah. not quite or defined as employees. Contract employees. I just don't want to like say on some sort of recording that, <laughs> that, that they're <laughs> actually that employed. Yes, that I understand. actually has legal implications. That, that, um, they're, they're, they're basically freelancers who yeah, are yeah. paying. We'll, we'll do a few hours for me every We'll be day. turning the tapes of this show over to the oh, Fantastic. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I was hoping for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you can see right through to it. But... I've lost my place. Okay. Well, why don't we <laughs> let Steve? It, yeah, I wanna, I'm curious about how what your arrangement is. So. Well, right, yeah. something that I I, I want to take a second and sort of redirect. <clears throat> we're we're talking about a lot of that uh, reaching for the middle level, growing your business thing. For a lot of you, if you're just getting started, I recall. So we 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 started Bully Pulpit ten years ago, and I recall when we were getting started, there were a lot of questions in my mind about how how do you do this like how do you form a business like is it a partnership is it an llc is it a single proprietorship uh do we need to have contracts do we need to have a business plan do we how do we deal with taxes all these questions they there aren't a lot of easy answers you know it depends on your locality it depends on what kind of business you're making it will involve a conversation with an accountant and a lawyer at some point. absolutely at some point and I, I would once again point out over the course of this show we have several other seminars yeah. and panels that are specifically about that by an accountant, by a lawyer. Justin Jacobson's right. a lawyer. And, and I guess the thing that I want to say about that is that it can feel daunting when you're starting out. You think, oh, I've got to do all of this. There's this huge startup for me to even get off the ground doing anything. $10,000 seed sounds crazy. And it, it was crazy. And you know, you could have started with 100. I right. mean, it, it's, it's, that's just the number we happen to have thousand? available. It was what? 100,000? Yeah. <laughs> so, so the way... Uh, the way we started out. <laughs> I think, and that's that's really my point. Yeah. You don't have to start out buying a bunch of art. You don't have to start out uh, building a lot of infrastructure. You start out by taking your game and sharing it with some people, and yep. seeing what they say about it, and build, starting to build that fan base, starting to establish yourself as designers, building some kind of brand. Uh, and Audience if there's is your most important, yeah, yeah the Absolutely. most important thing you're doing is building a, a community of people because and as I've said this a bunch of times if you're going to get to the point where you're doing a Kickstarter a Kickstarter is just turning social capital into real capital if you don't already have a big group of people who are going to talk about your game and care about your game and buy it then it's probably not going to work out for you unless, you're, unless your target is very small yeah. um, so I think when we started we we published the Shabble Harry Roach, and Jason was like, "Hey, here's this game. Let's see what we can do." It's a weird game about a psychic roach. From yeah, it's the stars. it's bizarre. It uh, it's like a six hour parlor LARP game that a lot of people liked, but we were like, "Well, who's going to buy this?" All right, so we printed a hundred copies. We went to uh, an alpha graphic shop in Seattle because somebody had given us a recommendation. We printed a hundred copies of this game. We printed cards at FedEx, a uh, little deck of cards. We uh, had them cut the cards and then we hand collated them with our wives walking around a table. We packed up all those shipments, those hundred books, and we sold them to people. And we were surprised that in the first month, people actually bought them, all yeah, one hundred. Yeah, and we included a little right, plastic yeah, roach as marketing, uh, and we were really surprised that it actually worked. We had each invested uh, a couple hundred dollars just to get this going, and after that first set, we were in the black. And we were like, "Oh, well, let's well, print, cool. let's print another hundred. We yeah. probably won't sell those." So, <laughs> so what you were investing at each stage was enough money that you could like lose it and walk away from right. it. Right. Our, our, our 
primary driving goal is not to lose any money because our wives would kill us. Yeah. Yeah. So we started very small and very conservatively and built slowly. Um, and, uh, that, and when you're just getting started, that's not a bad strategy, right? Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. But to tie into that founding question, sorry, uh, to tie into that founding question, um, <laughs> one of the reasons I've mostly focused on bringing people on as contract employees is because I don't want to do the horrible things that have happened to Rob's in my taxes. Yeah. Two more people, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. I was like, sure, we can f- work out a way for you to buy in, but basically, you're buying in in order to have your personal taxes be horrible every year because you're splitting up shares of the company's income as additions onto your personal income. Granted, the company is reimbursing you for for that tax payment, but it adds a lot of pain. Yes, um, and, and, that, that, and that that's the reason why wife is trying to kill a structural. Yeah. Right. And, choice. And, yeah, right, yeah that, that, depending on how you organize your company, right. that'll happen. All, that, all so three of the guys, all the other people at this table, you guys started from from scratch, from yeah. zero, from zero, from mm-hmm. a, and you zero. know, like we're yeah. at a point for that. Um, I'm the only. I've got, my experience was fairly different. I've never started a company from scratch, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did. I, I started. A, I started a company from scratch, but I never started a game from scratch, right? Like oh, I right, bought right. an existing property, which means I did need more seed money because I had to pay off Cliff Brody. To you know, clear the licenses and everything for Hero. When it came on the other in. hand, so you also bought a fan base. <laughs> exactly. That's the, the, the trade-off was that I bought a website that had two thousand people posting on it every day already, who desperately wanted this game. So that was a you know. That's why we were willing to put that down. And exactly. Well, and yeah, the same thing. You, I mean, yeah. you know, Brennan started IPR. I wound up buying it from yeah. him at a you know later point from this after Brennan had already done the work and built it up to a certain level. So that's not. I mean, it's most likely the way you're going to do it is the way these guys did it. And these guys are all tremendous success stories for doing it, but there are other ways to get yeah. in, you know, and other uh, other uh, uh, approaches yeah. to getting in at that level. I mean, and the reason Bob and I were willing to put in the amount of money that we did, right, was because the Dresden Files license was established was the as the company was established. And we're right. like, yeah. okay, um, yes, yeah, he's he's you know he's starting to get onto the New York Times bestseller list at this point. After that, James Marshall started doing the audiobooks, made his thing. Then the TV show happened. And got canceled, but the, yeah. those both were like huge audience mm-hmm. growths that happened during the development of our company and and the game. Right. Um, uh, so, but we knew that that trajectory was ahead. So that's why we were willing to put in more money because we thought less of a chance of losing it. Right. Well, a similar thing. A lot of the stuff you guys do is licensed, um, although not with Bullet Yeah. Um, not a lot, but yes. Yeah. yeah but so my, one of the things I was wondering about is how does the um, ownership of those you're just renting it for a, for a certain payout for a unit, um, mm-hmm. often with a upfront advance that is essentially paid against the royalties. But if, uh, if your employees were working on it, do you essentially buy it from, like, even if it, you were involved in the creation of that setting, do you then mm-hmm. license it to your own company just to like, sort of create that barrier? Uh, no. no. <coughs> No, um, like Spirit of the Century is is a, a brand and property owned by people. Um, uh, what we tend to do in our, I think what we, you can remind me because I, I, I put this peculiar uh, uh, requirement on you when you drafted the writing contract. We have something in there that basically says a writer can show off up to 2,000 words of what they wrote for us. Um, so in that sense, there's a little bit of co-ownership of the writing, but um, it's, what, it's kind yeah, of hard to say you can resell this writing somewhere else like you could with a piece of art. Right. Uh, the, so. way, the way we structured it is that you guys own it and then you license them back to write and use it for certain purposes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for uh, example, in, in uh, largely free context. Hero is not on the Champions Universe anymore. 
when yeah. we did the video game, we sold the rights to that property, which then to got Cryptid, bought by Atari, which then got bought by Atari, which has you know yeah. spun out has now owned several people got in line. But the point was, when we did that, we as we built into that sale a license to continue doing the type of tabletop game back to us that couldn't that I don't know couldn't be broken, but you know there was, it was no, very hard. To it would break, be yeah. very hard to break. We had some good lawyers working on it, so like you know we we were quite happy to you know like to turn that over and just in the end keep our piece. Yeah. You know, of it going forward, so it's perfectly possible to wind up with somebody else having ownership of that IP separate from you, but you're continuing to work on it because you're doing just the tabletop right. game side of it, right? Like we had no, you know, impact or any kind of like creative control over the video game when well, it came out. So. And the, the the situation I do is a little bit different, which is more of a collaboration with a creator where I'm acting as a publisher for someone else's game, right? And in that, what I what the agreement is generally is that we, yeah, yeah, we split uh, profits 50-50. So expenses get covered by the sales, and then after that, my company takes half, the author takes half. And those are generally start on like a three-year contract because uh, that's about how long it takes me for get, to make sure I get enough money to work to, on to it, it, made yeah, it worth to make it worthwhile. Yeah. But then after that, it's it's you know uh, automatically renew, renewable annually unless one person decides to break to break off. And that's pretty much what but we set up with Marshall. For yeah, the warm. yeah, yeah. But part of how that that ends up working is you know you, you, you have a conversation. Everything is a conversation. It should always be a conversation with your talent, where you're figuring out what they're bringing to the table which includes what costs they're bringing to the table for you. And the more costs that you are taking on as a publisher, the larger cut you should be taking on because cost equals risk. Right. The more risk you assume, that, that, that's, that, that's essentially what these royalty percentages represent. It's like you take small risk, you get small royalty, you get you know the, the, the larger part of the payout. But if it's fairly equivalent, like the person writes this and is not getting any sort of payment for their writing except in the form of the royalty, that 50-50 split ends up making a lot of sense because they're bringing to you a fully formed game where right. you are then taking care of the packaging. Then right? what I'm doing is, yeah, the production. Right, right, right. yeah. Um, uh, uh, whereas for us, it might be, uh, we just need you to produce the words. We're also going to do, like, all the editing stuff. We're, we're going to bring in somebody to do that and so forth. So there's, there's a lot, it's a lot more, it's a lot more constrained with, with something like that. And in, in those cases, we tend to, like, buy the words at a per word rate, um, uh, in part because royalties are... <coughs> Bookkeeping. They are nightmares. I'm with um, you on that. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's more pragmatic than an unwillingness to do royalties. I've done royalty deals. It's just that each one of them every month represents like multiple times where I need to sit down and enter lots of numbers into the spreadsheets. We, um, we talked around this a little bit, but uh, Justin Beck here, who's talking about contracts, uh, I think we're all using some variation of his contracts. Maybe, <laughs> Probably maybe not yeah. on your end. But, <laughs> yeah. Fred, can uh, I have a look at your contract? Sure. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's where I got most yeah, of my yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but And the value of that is that it's easy to imagine that a contract is a really complicated, legally filled bunch of nonsense, but Justin's done a really good job of pointing out that it's really just a formalized way to have that conversation that you need to be having with people yeah. to be very clear about what the terms are in everybody's part. Plus he has a plus two sword of legally slang. Yeah. I mean, the reality is that if this falls to a lawsuit at our scale, that's just everybody's going to lose. The, the, the contract's not going to protect you from that. But what it's going to do is establish who, what everybody's responsibilities are. Yeah, right. expectations. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what is the kind of proportion of the direct sales versus like a own the other channels and, and how do you guys it kind of very, very, it? very much depends on your audience size. 
Um, when you are at a fairly small scale, um, a, a lot of it is direct sales. Uh, and you're lucky to get in like maybe 20% of your sales into uh, uh, retail through an outfit like IVR that specializes in finding the, the small games and making them available to, uh, to retailers. Um, as you get more successful, as your, as your audience grows, uh, in my case, I'd say at least 80% of our sales come from distribution. Um, but that's because we got up to the scale of Fate Core and Ghost Pals. Right, where distribution game. got interested. In, distribution in got interested off. enough, and right. they're like, well, we're willing to do very little work to get to get your product out to a lot of places, and we'll get our little 10% slice in, in there. Um, there's definitely, you know, you'll get your 40% slice in there, and then yeah. the retailers will assume all of the risk, which is why they get uh, products at about 50%. Um, there's definitely a leveling up point where... Um, before Fiasco exploded, we were, if we had gone to Alliance or ACD, and, and in fact this did happen, going to the various distributors and saying, hey, would you like to carry our games? They'd say, oh, yeah, don't you have any press revolution for that? Why don't you go talk to them? We don't want your stuff. Yeah. Because we weren't going to print. Scale. We weren't going to print it in enough volume or sell it enough volume for them to care. Right. Uh, and the moment that Fiasco was on tabletop, <coughs> suddenly I had distributors saying, hey, this, this game's yours. Four or five digit you know, yeah. print runs instead of print on demand, yeah. a couple hundred. Right. right. Yeah. right. Yeah. So the first thing that happened is I realized, you know, we're going to have to print at a much higher level. And so I talked to Fred to find out what printers they were using, and yeah. we went to them and could get a much better deal mm -hmm. uh, at the scales that we could print at. And then yeah. the distributors cared. And yeah, so it's. There's a jump yeah. that happens And there. that cycle continues to roll. You know, like the more mm -hmm. of that you're moving, then with better printers and the better deals with printers you're able to get. The more retailers you know, know who you more are. more retailers know who you are, which drives more distribution sales, et cetera. Yeah, and which you know, makes the 60% the off discount that you're giving the distributor to, to, to buy uh, your product make actual sense because when <coughs> you're printing, say, enough copies of Fate Accelerated that this $5 book that you're putting out costs you maybe $0.37 cents per, per, per thing, when the distributor then buys that for two bucks, you're still making a really healthy profit per unit. Um, uh, and that sort of thing only happens with scale. Right. So, you know, th th it's really what scale are you at is going to get a vastly different answer to your original question there. Also, your medium. Um, if you are looking at, uh, like, digital sales, uh, you might think that uh, doing your digital sales primarily directly makes a lot of sense because it's digital. There's no barrier, except the barrier is people don't want to have to hunt around for a lot of different places to buy. They want to go to a one-stop shop like drive through um, Based on the sales performance I've seen over the last at least five years or so, <coughs> that drive through for, for digital RPG stuff probably owns easily 80% of the PDF role-playing game market. Yeah. So if you're not on there, you're practically invisible at, once you start to get to like any kind of appreciable scale. Um, even if you're on there, you can get invisible because there's tons and tons and tons of stuff on there. But it's, it, it's at the very least the marketplace that everybody needs to go to, even if it's a bit of a Moss Eisley. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Moss <laughs> Eisley. <laughs> uh, so kind of carrying this a little bit further, but if I have um, my PDF and it's on uh, RPG drive through mm -hmm. and I'm also doing retail stores, so I'm doing both, what percent should... You know, I kind of think in terms of, well, the retail stores are really, that's, you know, is that the important thing to focus on? Or is marketing the RPG on drive through the important thing to focus on in where, terms of where's your how audience? much effort? I mean, you're yeah. going to have to, well, I that's can't answer that for you. Go where the people are. Go, go where the people are. Right. Where are you getting sales now? What is working? And pour more resources into more that. There is no one answer because I don't know who your audience if, is. If, if you can afford to risk exposing 
your product in a bunch of different venues, do it, and then right. and then chase the ones that work. Yeah. Chase what works. Right. 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 Also, your your print market and your your digital market are not necessarily the same thing. Right. No, I mean, yeah, exactly. people who want PDFs are doing that on purpose. They don't want your print book. So you're not cannibalizing one set of sales for the other. But another good thing to keep in mind, and we should definitely mention this, is Bits and Mortar. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, because this is an initiative that Fred and Chris started, right? I mean, Chris? Uh, well, I, I started it together with Cubicle 7 and a couple other indie okay. publishers. Uh, you were one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, the idea is that you support. You do want to have them in retail stores. It's important to support the retail stores because they're the ones that are interfacing with communities of people who will not know about your game. Uh, so giving them as much support as you can is great, and one way to do that is bits and mortar. What's interesting about that is that that partly grew out of also being aware of where your choices of where to sell something can cause offense to the choices where you're not. Right, right. Retailers, oh, get, retailers angry. get really angry about drive-through RPG because they felt like drive-through RPG was going on cannibalizing their sales. Yeah. Yeah. Now I don't think that reality necessarily bears up that interpretation, but that became the narrative. Yeah. Um, so. Bits of Mortar grew out of this idea that, well, why don't we make sure that people can get all the benefit of a digital sale just from buying the book at the price of the, of the physical book? Right. So suddenly you've filed off all the sharp edges of, uh, oh, they're, they're also selling stuff PDF. I'm, I'm a, they're an indie publisher. Their market is only so large anyway. Why is retail would I bother? Oh, because my customers are going to get the PDF anyway from buying the book from, from me. Mm-hmm. Right. So now we've created a mutual incentive where both the publisher and the retailer want the sale to happen at the retail level. At the retail, yeah, level. At the retail yeah. level. Also, well, because as, as a publisher, you still get more money for that. Yeah. Right? yeah. Also, right. as a, as as you get up in scale to where being able to get into distribution where you're getting only forty percent of your cover price makes sense. You're also probably getting into a point where um, the amount of revenue that you take in from a print sale isn't that different right. from a priced at half of the physical cover price PDF sale after drive-through takes its cut. Right. So you're actually get per per sale, no matter the medium, you're getting roughly roughly uh, the same amount of profit. So a sale is a sale is a sale, and that's a great place to find yourself. Well, and and the the important thing I think about bits and mortar really is that retail is still a super important channel for it is. us because. What sells role-playing games is people playing role-playing games, yes. right? Um, and if nobody's playing the game, nobody's going to buy it. It doesn't help me if some dude in a shack in the middle of Montana buys a PDF if he never plays it, right? right? But it, at least in a, reta- in a retail... Unless he talks about it extensively online and which you've got a, would be a fine. reviewer with a follow But it, at least at a retail store, there's a place where, which has an incentive to build a community of people playing games that... You know that, that there's a venue where the, the, someone could take yes. a game and actually play it with other human beings, and then they may buy the game. In the best right. possible right. case, they are paying you money through, again, through a proxy, through a distributor, uh, uh, for the privilege of advertising your game to their customers, right? right. So uh, uh, that, when it's working great, is fantastic. I, that, I, that said, this is the real world, yeah. and there are a bunch of retailers out there that aren't great, and there are a bunch of retailers out there that I, are I great. Really the most useful thing a retailer does is create a community of yeah. people who care at that store or right. who are interested in those things. Um, and, and the ones so who are really good at that are what the I call the alpha stores. Exactly. Like the stores are like Endgame, are like Modern Myths, are like, you know, and every one of those retailers is absolute gold to you as a publisher. Yeah. Yeah. You, you will go way out of your way yeah. to make them happy. And it's worth shooting at trying to get to 200 retailers if you just get 10 of them. Right. Of those alpha ones. Yeah, the alpha yeah. ones, right. And that will spread from there. Exactly. Because those guys, that's all right. 
that, that will spread from there when you when you get those you know those gold retailers who are you know like giving you all that that the the, the the force multiplier that they're applying to everything that you do to all of your marketing and to all of your own community building um, for it will reflect will start to reflect out you'll start seeing it in other places and people will be like well I heard about you on this podcast or I saw you in this thing you know all of that starts from the community building that retailers do yeah so, so if you could convince someone like Alpha Atomic Empire, which is like a, yeah, that's a, that's a great one. That's an Alpha Atomic Empire. Carrier sure. game. That's a. That's yeah, a, you're in great it's shape. It's huge. Yeah, it's tremendous. The value that each one of those has to. Bringing up Atomic Black Diamond. Bringing up Atomic Empire reminds me of another thing I thought I would mention is uh, the. the and we'll, we have another panel tomorrow about matters of scale, uh, scaling up your business, which is similar to this. But um, when we first did Shovel Hero Roadshow, I was shipping every one of those out in a little envelope myself. And that seemed fine, 100 books, whatever. Mm-hmm. When we did the Fiasco Companion, I did the same thing. But at that point, I had done a pre-order and Fiasco was a thing. And I was like, what the hell am I doing with, this, with these mailing labels and stuff? Forget this. I'm not ever doing this again. And we went and talked to Atomic Empire, which is our local retail store. Um, and they've got a really good online presence, really good space in the store, and a big warehouse. And while we were talking to them, they said, you know, we could just start shipping your books for you. And so they warehouse stuff for us locally. Uh, we also have stuff with Alliance and Indie Press Revolution, but they warehouse it locally. And every time we've done a Kickstarter, we ship all of our books to them. And they package everything up and send it out for us. Right. So there are That's different levels, and you guys should definitely talk to them about it, because Jennifer would love to work That's with right. you. Yeah. Right. DOJ Logistics, who does IPRs, warehousing and everything for it, also offers yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Yep. There, there, there are a lot of ways to do that. And actually, when I started out, first I had products that were on Lulu, so Lulu took care of the shipping. And I like that enough, and I'm like, I should never do shipping. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to do that at all. I so Brennan was running IPR at the time. He said, Brennan, yeah, please maybe run our pre-order for Spirit Century. And this was like, this was like from month one of Evil Hat to month four. Month four, I was getting like uh, together with Brennan and running the Spirit Century pre-order on IPR. Yep, um, that worked and, great. Uh, yeah, that worked great. I still ended up helping with the shipping operation because Brennan's like, Brad, you've made a lot of work for me in a very short period of time. Come up to New Jersey with your books. And we will we will wrap them up, and uh, I'll I'll take care of whatever's left. That was afterwards. before I haven't sourced the shipping. Yeah, that was before right. I sourced. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to say, Bully Pulpit would not have ever really gotten off the ground if it wasn't for Brennan and Indie Press Revolution, because yeah. I built a website so that we could sell our books directly. Like I, I built my own web store, and it was terrible. And if we had had to rely on that to sell our books, we would have failed. Yeah. yeah. And being able to hand that off was excellent. And we keep pointing to Brennan because he was one of the founders of IPR, but these days it's being run by. Jason Walters. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, if you would like uh, the, the fun story of being able to tell people that your uh, books are in a warehouse across from Burning Man, um, uh, uh, it's a great and, way to go. And are packed and, uh, by Burning Man employees. Or, so occasionally packed by Burning Man employees. They cross over employers there. But it's kept in a nice dry warehouse in the middle of the, uh, the Nevada desert. Um, Which is actually relatively close to the shipping crossroads, you know, more there. Yeah. So they actually can get, you know, trucks, uh, yeah. trucking through yeah. there on a regular basis. It's a perfect cape place to keep books and games, as they say, because it's completely dry. There's it's not going to get flooded. Right. Not going to get flooded. You're not going to get, you know. Yeah. So if you're, if you're if there's, there's nothing Man, close to burn if there's a fire. That happens up in the hills. Yeah, right. if you're at Burning Man and you're in the Black Rock Desert, you climb to the top of the fly geyser, you can see our warehouse. Yeah. So, so you, were, you were saying, you know, you... you decided that you didn't ever want to do that I yourself. I did not ever want to do that. Well, and it, of course, I, I started a game company and I was like, why don't I ship everybody else's yeah, books yeah. too? <laughs> that seems like a lot of fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, 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 that list of things that I knew I, I, I didn't enjoy and couldn't do well, shipping was right in the bottom. That's where I started right from day one. 
So, yeah. <laughs> Are there other questions? We I was going to say, we've got five or six minutes at least. Two or four well, like, I'm no good at being an adult. I never get to the mail, the mail uh, post office. So. Right. <laughs> I shouldn't check. No? no? All right. All right. Awesome. Thanks for coming, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've always done is uh, give some help to starting publishers. So if you need some contract help or whatever, yes, you know, absolutely. Just, yeah. Justin is very or generous. Free, you know, he works on the Stingray plan. So. Yeah. If you ever saw that TV show, I'm dating myself. No, yeah, the Stingray plan. The Stingray plan. He, I understood the reference when he used it. Cool, right on. Yep. Thanks, Thanks everybody. All right. Thank you.